this is a really uh, a deep, uh, lots of stuff in it, and it's gonna, you're going to have to use your brain cells tonight, so you'll have to wake up. Basic theme of chapter 7 is the, uh, well, let me pray, and then we'll officially start here. Father, thank you for tonight. I pray that you'll bless our time as we look into your word, in Hebrews chapter 7, as we talk about uh, you, Lord Jesus, being our high priest, and uh, we would understand what that means, and we would just serve you, live for you, and thank you for our great salvation. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, writer of Hebrews is talking about how much better Christ is, the new covenant than the old covenant, the new system than the old system, and the topic that he's dealing with in this chapter is the uh, being a high priest the fellow that's the topic of the, this chapter is Melchizedek and uh, I can only pronounce it about three times and then after that I start stumbling so if I s sound funny after the third time understand that uh, my uh, son-in-law Thomas you know he's from Liberia and so uh, they speak English but it's a little different and so there's certain words he can't say very well and so the other night he tried to say Melchizedek and uh, <laughs> about the third time he gave up. I, I, I could tell that he was trying to say Melchizedek, but it wasn't even close. But uh, so Melchizedek, let me read Hebrews chapter 7 and then we'll look at it. Uh, this is a fairly long chapter, so I'll try to, uh, you'll have to follow along. For this, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, uh, this is the first High priest mentioned in the Bible, Melchizedek, and um, in time of Abraham, way before uh, Aaron and the priest that took place in the temple happened, priest of the Most High God, who made him a high priest? Nobody knows. He's sort of a mystery. Don't know where he lived, don't know who his mother was, don't know who his father was, don't know when he was born, don't know when he died. Just sort of shows up on the scene and declared to be a high priest. And uh, evidently God made him a high priest. And uh, first one ever mentioned of the Bible. So he met, meets Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. You remember the, uh, this particular battle? Uh, his nephew Aaron, uh, um, Lot was captured and so he goes to rescue him. And uh, that's this battle that takes place in the process of rescuing him and he wins uh, decisively and has a lot of uh, goods that he got from the armies that he defeated. And so he stops by and this Melchizedek meets him. And uh, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. That's an interesting statement there, and we'll look at that uh, when we get to that 
a bit later, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, speaking of Jesus, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, and so it is changed dramatically from the Aaronic priesthood now to Jesus being high priest who was not, uh, he was from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. And so he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so there, of necessity there takes place a change of law. Priesthood changes, so does the law. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reverence to which Moses spoke no, nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of, of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, setting aside of a former commandment, that is the commandment that was given through Moses, Mount Sinai, to the nation of Israel, because of its weakness and uselessness. Now he's writing to Jewish believers, and uh, so he's telling them that uh, the Old Testament law that Moses gave was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he, again speaking of Jesus, with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So we've talked about the old covenant, the new covenant, and uh, also called a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest. Uh, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And so this chapter, the theme is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is perfect. He is forever. And he became such on the basis of his death, his offering, and his burial and his resurrection. So in your notes, number one, Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, first of all by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So now the, the question is, is 
this a type, this individual, um, or was this an individual literally that um, God put on the scene that wasn't uh, born like you and I, didn't have a father, didn't have a mother, didn't have a genealogy, uh, no beginning of days nor end of life. And so generally it's accepted that it's, uh, that's a statement of the fact that it's not recorded anywhere. Nobody knows anything about him. Uh, nothing was written down uh, who his mother was, who his father was, when he was born, when he died. He just was a priest. Showed up on the scene, and, uh, and he's in the Bible. And so he becomes a type or a picture of Christ because of the fact that none of this information is recorded, or it could be literally true in the sense that uh, God just plopped him on the scene and uh, wasn't born, no record of his death, didn't have a father, didn't have a mother. He just declared by God to be a high priest. And what he did, nobody really knows because nothing's recorded about what he did except this one event. Um, so whatever you decide you like, you can decide that's your view. Uh, I personally uh, believe that he probably was a regular person who had a regular mother and a regular father, became a high priest, God picking him to be such. Uh, we don't know the details of that, but because nothing is recorded about that, he became a picture or a type of Christ because none of that information uh, was available. Melchizedek was a high priest who apparently had been personally chosen by God, assigned to be a high priest for God. And so how that happened, we don't know, but uh, he was recognized as a high priest. Abraham recognized that he was a high priest, gave him a tenth of all the spoils. And so he knew who he was. Evidently, people in that time knew who he was. Melchizedek is the first high priest mentioned in the Bible. So that's a little bit of trivia. You can ask people this question. Uh, who's the first high priest mentioned in the Bible? And the average individual, if they read their Bible, probably will say Aaron. And they'll say, nope. Somebody was a high priest before Aaron was even born. Uh, and so you'll be able to uh, impress them with your Bible knowledge. Yeah. Melchizedek was king of Salem, also a high priest as a type of Jesus who was both king and high priest. And so Jesus is king, and he is a high priest. And Melchizedek said he was king of Salem. And he was also a high priest, and so he becomes a picture or a type or a forerunner of Christ. The uniqueness of Melchizedek could be just an illustration, a type, or it could be literal. And so whatever your view is, you can circle it with your pen. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 5 Earlier, we remember we went through this when we talked about Christ being our high priest. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. So a high priest's job was to take care of sins for us. Uh, he was between us and God. He was a representative before us for God, uh, to God, and he was appointed 
uh, on our behalf by God. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weaknesses. Because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. No one takes the honor to himself but receives it when he is called by God. And so God calls high priest. Evidently, Melchizedek was called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Aaron was declared to be a priest, the Aaronic priesthood. Melchizedek was declared by God to be a priest. And then Jesus becomes our high priest and he is after the order of Melchizedek, not Aaron. And uh, number two in your notes, Hebrews 7, 4 through 8. Observe how great this man was. So Melchizedek was great. He was famous. He was well thought of, uh, though we don't know anything about him. Evidently, during that time, uh, they did. The patriarch gave a tenth of the choices spoils. And those indeed are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham. Blessed the one who had the promises, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. So here's another little uh, thing you can quiz people on. When did the tithe, is when we use the term 10%, begin? You can ask uh, people that question, and the average individual will say, uh, let's see, Moses gave it in the law to the nation of Israel. Well, Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And uh, how long was uh, the Israelites in Egypt? 400 years? 400 plus years. And uh, so Abraham was before that. And so there's quite a few years between Abraham and Moses. And Moses uh, indeed gave the law. Mount Sinai included in that was instructions about giving. But Abraham ties to Melchizedek. Why? Evidently, if you remember, we looked at, when we looked at the various laws it says abraham obeyed the law of god and the question we uh, asked at that point was what law what law was he obeying following well we don't know it's not recorded but evidently abraham received from god some uh, set of laws or principles that he obeyed and followed and included in that was some instructions about giving because when he met melchizedek he gave him 10 percent of all that he collected from his enemies so, uh, how much do I give? You don't have a clue. You'll have to ask my wife. Uh, so, I don't uh, give uh, 10%. I give uh, more than that. Um, so, Abraham had a set of laws. And included in that was a instruction about giving. Moses had instructions in the law about giving. Included in that was a 10%. In fact, there were uh, at least three different tithes given. Uh, so it was uh, more than 10%. And so in the New Testament, 
the new covenant. We have a new set of laws. And uh, it's, you decide. But it's still proportional. Um, proportional giving was a principle before the law, commanded by God through Moses in the law, and clearly taught by Paul to the church. First Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Um, according to as he prospers, and that, that would be according to and proportion to, uh, it'd be proportional giving. In other words, you give a part of what you give. And, but in the New Testament, it's my firm belief that we are not under the law and not even part of it. And so the New Testament is our standard, the rules that God has given us, our law. And uh, there's nothing in there that suggests any set amount. It's you decide. Um, it's kind of based on people ask me, how much should I pray? I say, how much do you want blessed? If you want blessed a little, pray a little. If you want blessed a lot, pray a lot. All up to you. How much should I give? How much do you want to be blessed? Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you sow a little, you'll reap a little. If you sow a lot, you reap a lot. So you want a little crop or a big crop? It's totally up to you. You decide. But it is a faith uh, principle in that you trust that God is going to take care of you and that he is also going to bless you on the basis of the sacrifice that you make. Um, <clears throat> so I'm going to be a little self-serving on this next point, uh, but that's all right. Uh, the primary purpose of giving before the law and in the law was to support the priest and the ministry of the priest for the people. And so they had a tabernacle, then they had a temple, then they had priests. And so there was giving that was commanded by God in the law. And the purpose was that's what the priests who gave their life uh, to offer up the sheep and the bulls and the goats and keep the temple and do all that they did. That's what they lived on was the money that people gave from their tithe. In the writing of Paul to the church, the primary purpose of giving is to support those who are teaching and leading in the church and the ministry uh, of the church. So when you give, uh, the offering plate goes around on Sunday, Saturday, and you put money in that offering, and you give proportionally, that is, you made a commitment to give 5%, 10%, 15%, 20%, 50%, 90%. I have a family member who gives 90% of all of their income. Uh, to the church and to missions, they get audited every year. And uh, they've done that for years. And you wouldn't know to, that they had a lot of money by their lifestyle, but they live a fairly simple life so that they can give uh, a lot. And so they have the same motto. I think it was uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards. I forget who said it. Earn as much as you can, save as much as you can, give as much as you can. Uh, that was his basic motto. 
And so in the writing of Paul to the church, the primary purpose of giving is to support those who are teaching and leading in the church and the ministry of the church. Galatians 6, 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, this is what he will reap. And so, again, how much uh, should you give? All up to you. Uh, whatever a man sows, this is what he'll reap. And Paul says that here. He says it again in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Philippians 4, Paul uh, writing a thank you note to the Philippian church. He said, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Your account, where's that account at? Yeah, it's in heaven. As you give, uh, it gets recorded in your account at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we receive uh, rewards for that giving, uh, many times more than we gave. He said, I don't seek the money from you, but I do encourage you to give, Paul said, because it's good for you and it'll be really good at the judgment seat of Christ. But I have received everything in full, have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, a fragrant aroma to God, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, well-pleasing to God. God loves a cheerful giver. And uh, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, people quote that verse all the time. My God shall supply all my needs according to the riches in Christ. Well, not everybody can claim that. Uh, those who are uh, stingy givers. Paul puts this here at the end of a thank you note to the Philippians for their um, generous gift that's a fragrant aroma to God, an acceptable sacrifice. Sacrifice, it means it cost them something. It was a gift well-pleasing to him. And because of that, he says, here's what you will be uh, experiencing as a blessing. God will supply all your needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. A whole lot of people can't claim that verse because their giving uh, is not sacrificial. Uh, it's and uh, sometimes even non-existent. 1 Corinthians 9, 6 through 14. Do, you not, do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does the law, not the law also say these things? It is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for your, our sake? Yes, for our sake it, it was written. I actually went and spoke at a church, did a seminar there. And uh, the pastor asked me, he said, What's, uh, what, what, what do you uh, uh, have for an honorarium? I said, I don't, whatever you want. Uh, you know, it's close, it's not that big a deal. If you don't want to give me anything, I'm fine with that. He said, oh, no, we don't want to muzzle the ox. <laughs> and so uh, nobody had ever called me an ox before. <clears throat> you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, but those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? 
So also the Lord directed those who proclaimed the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Probably one of the more enjoyable times of ministry for us, Patty and I, um, was when we first started. And because we were a little church, didn't have much income, our monthly salary was $500 a month. And pretty much everybody knew that. And so we regularly got, uh, people gave us eggs, uh, fruit, meat, uh, bought shoes for the kids, bought diapers for the kids. We got stuff all the time because they knew we didn't uh, have a whole lot of income. And we actually did better then than we do now. <laughs> so it was kind of nice being poor. You know, people took care of us. And, uh, but I often uh, would remind individuals of some of these verses and how God blesses and works in that regard. So there was a sense of partnership. Uh, it was really kind of cool. Let him who is taught share with him who does the teaching. And so they would remind me of that. You teach us and so we'll take care of you. And so we were w well taken care of. A second purpose is to meet needs of people. And so uh, we have a homeland missions ministry in our church. We do a special offering for that. One of the things that they do is meet needs of people who have, are in a, a dilemma financially. Titus 3.13, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. And so that was an admonition from Paul to Titus. We, as the people of God, need to engage in good deeds, that is, meet needs that people have uh, that we see. We have, uh, the church pays me, and so I think it's kind of, I don't know if dumb is the right word, but I don't give money back to the church that I've gotten. So when we give, we give to different uh, places we give in the special offering every time that there's an offering but we especially uh, enjoy giving money to people in the church that have needs and so sometimes they will send me an email is there any money in the church for this or that or whatever and so uh, Patty and I will often uh, help out in those situations as we become aware of it is our avenue for giving uh, that we do 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 5, I testify that according to their ability, beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. Beyond their ability, that means it was really sacrificial, begging us with much urging for the favor, participation, and the support of the saints. And this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. And so their giving was a result of their devotion uh, to Christ personally. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 through 9, but just as you abound in everything, in faith, utterance, and knowledge, and in all earnestness, and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, and so Paul's not putting this in the light of uh, the Ten Commandments, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so Paul's giving a principle here on, in the area of uh, sacrificial giving uh, to people. By the way, uh, I, had a, I gave a quiz on Sunday when we were on Hebrews 11. I said, what's the faith chapter? And uh, 
They got it. Hebrews 11. Yeah. Uh, what's the resurrection chapter? Uh, nobody got that one. 1 Corinthians 15. The love chapter? Oh, yeah, that's 1 Corinthians 13. There's two giving chapters. The topic of both chapters from beginning to end is on giving. And they are 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Uh, Paul's talking about the special offering they were going to take, and so he writes in those two chapters lots of great principles on giving. Number three in your notes, Hebrews 7, 9 through 10. So to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So that's an interesting passage. And uh, in your notes, uh, a significant theological principle taught in this verse is called federal headship. I'm not sure who came up with that term, but that's typically what you will read in most uh, books that would, uh, concordances and theology works. It's called federal headship. And so you've probably seen these cups where there's a little bitty cup, like a thimble, then there's a little cup a little bit bigger on, and then on that one, and there's one a little bit bigger on that one, and a little bit bigger on that one, and a little bit bigger on that one, and a little bit bigger on that one, and... When it's all done, all you see is one big cup, but you take it off, there's a smaller one, and then another one, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And so kind of what that's saying is that you have Abraham, and Abraham had a son, Isaac, and, and he had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son, one cup on top of another, and included in that cup was Levi. And so Levi wasn't born for hundreds of years later, but... He paid tithes because he was in the loins of Abraham, uh, one little cup under a whole bunch of cups above him. And so to speak, when Adam sinned, so did we. We were right there with him. Um, now, we think, that's wow, that's a lot of little cups, but God can do that kind of thing. Uh, and so, anyway, when we talk about us being sinners because Adam sinned. It's not that we did the sin, it's just that we were included in it because of this federal headship, uh, that theological term that's used. Um, Hebrew, uh, number four, Hebrews 7, 11 through 19. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. So that little verse right there, Hebrews 7, 12, uh, all this uh, stuff I have to deal with as a pastor, with people who uh, upset those who have weak faith by telling them that they're going to go to hell because they don't worship on Saturday or because they eat pork uh, or they don't follow this law or that law. Uh, I mean, it's almost an every week occurrence where somebody emails me, texts me, calls me, phones me in kind of a tither because somebody has told them they're in really big trouble because they're not worshiping on Saturday and they're not doing this or this or this. And so they asked me about it and said, that law was given to Moses for the nation of Israel. I'm English. My wife is German. I don't believe I have any Jewish blood in me. Uh, I'm a Gentile. 
uh, by definition of the term. And uh, the name Duke is English through and through. Came from England uh, way back uh, to Florida, and there's quite a few Dukes back there, not many here. And so God gave law to Adam. How many laws did he have? One's all I can read about. Don't eat off this particular tree. And so Abraham had law. We don't know what they were, but it says Abraham obeyed the law of God, the commandments and laws of God given to him by him. Moses received laws from God on Mount Sinai, gave them to the nation of Israel, the old covenant. And now the point that he's making repeatedly in the book of Hebrews is we are under the new covenant, not the old covenant. When the priesthood is changed, a necessity there takes place a change of law also. And so somebody says to me, do you believe in the Ten Commandments? No. You mean you, you think you can kill people? No. The New Testament says you're not supposed to kill people. It says you're not supposed to lie. There are more laws in the New Testament than there is in the Old Testament, and they're quite a bit more difficult and hard. So I, I'm not a person without law. I just have a different set of laws. Um, so if I play basketball, I use the rules that are made for basketball. If I play football, I use the rules made for football. You don't use one for the other. And so the law that God gave us in the New Testament uh, through the Lord Jesus and through the apostles is very clear. Uh, and I can read it and decide exactly how I ought to live my life, and you can as well. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one is officiated at the altar. It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. It is clear still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, that is, he rose from the dead, is attested of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. On the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, a setting aside of a former commandment, that's the commandment given to the nation of Israel. You read it in the book of Exodus, Leviticus. It's set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope, the new covenant and all that goes with that as, uh, through which we draw near to God. The rules for living life and having a relationship with God have changed. From the one given to Adam in the garden until those given to the church today. So people ask me, well, why even read the book of Exodus? Well, because everything is built um, on top of what was previously taught. It's sort of like you can't really know how to do algebra if you don't know 2 plus 2. Uh, everything is built on what was previously given. And so your notes, we can't understand the rules given to us in the New Testament if we don't understand the rules given in the rest of the Bible. So one of the things that I hear people say is that we are living under grace. And they will imply that that means we don't have rules. And I would suggest that maybe they ought to read uh, uh, the letters of Paul and see how many rules and laws he has. I did that uh, as a Bible study. I went through and read uh, Romans through Jude, and every imperative, every command, I wrote it down. 
And when I got them all written down, I combined the ones that were similar, and I came up with uh, the laws of the New Testament for the church, and uh, I wrote them down in alphabetical order, so they're very organized, and I can find them. Somebody asked me the other day, would you give those to me? I said, no, do your own study. Uh, it's fairly easy to do that, then you will know. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God, profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All scripture, that means Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, is inspired, profitable, and we can learn and grow from all of it. Um, you read the book of Leviticus, it gets kind of boring, uh, describing all the sacrifices. And you, what lessons can you learn from the book of Leviticus? Well, there's a lot of them. One of the things you can learn from Leviticus is God loves order. God loves order. Number five in your notes, um, I'm going to uh, not read all those verses just for the sake of time. So I read it to you once already, so we'll jump to the note part of your notes. Jesus is our high priest, and as such he saved us from our sins by offering himself as the propitiation for our sins. So a high priest's job was to take care of sins, and Jesus did this in a much more uh, thorough, permanent way. High priest, it was a temporary thing at best. And so he saves us from our sins by offering himself. Jesus is our high priest, and as such, he continually makes intercession for us on the basis of our needs. He is our high priest. He intercedes for us between us and the Father. And so at the end of your prayers, when you pray in Jesus' name, we pray you're acknowledging that fact that he is your high priest and it's through him uh, that uh, our prayers reach the Father. And then Jesus is our high priest forever. When we get to heaven, he will be our high priest. And all the time we are there, he will be our high priest. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling them, don't abandon your faith. Don't go back to the old system, the old covenant. Uh, that system of priests was weak, useless, and you get a new priest every time one dies. Now in this one, we have one priest forever, Jesus Christ, who offered himself for our sins, and uh, we are forgiven forever because of him. So I hope that was not too complicated, didn't give you too much of a headache. Um, amen. Questions on any of that?